Thanks for tuning in to The Big Idea Show. I'm Michael Anderson, and today we have Tom Spence and Ron Bamier on the program. We hope to make the next 30 minutes a very good investment of your time. Today's show is brought to you by GEICO Local Office, car and homeowner's insurance for the 805. You could save up to 15%. Call Greg Mock of GEICO Local Office, 805-487-7847. Well, Spence, Ron, it's a treat to have you in studio today. There's a lot going on here in our community and also across the country. And I hope we can take the next 20 to 30 minutes before Christmas here. We're going to air it out a little bit. In particular, there's something interesting happening with uh, small businesses closing. A restaurant that's been a staple in Ventura for a long time now closing. Some people up in arms, some people saying it's a necessary thing that uh, in evolution, sometimes the businesses close. This is the nature of the way things work. Ron, give us an update. What are what are some things that you're seeing or thinking with regards to the Vagabond and businesses closing? Uh, well, I'm a big fan of the Vagabond. I've been going there for the last 14 years, 15 years, uh, because my office where I'm located on Thompson Boulevard is literally half a block away from it. So we do tons of uh, business uh, meetings there, breakfast meetings there. And I know the owner, Jolene. I've had the pleasure of spending time with her. I know her daughter who works there, Vicki. I know many of the staff by name. Until recently, I didn't know she was renting. She didn't own the place. And the Vagabond is not going away. Like There will be a Vagabond restaurant there uh, in six months from now. But it won't be run by Jolene. It won't be owned by Jolene. And Jolene is being asked to leave by the corporation. And so I, what I understand the facts to be is last year, the corporation who owns the property, by terms of lease, gave her the notice that next year you'll be out. And so she had a year notice to get out. She didn't tell anybody at the time, and so nobody knew that there was only one more year left of this ownership at the Vagabond. And she was implicitly promised, I guess, that her staff would stay and the person who is now her main cook would be the manager of the place. And apparently the corporation has had second thoughts on that and has said, no, no, we're just going to flip the whole thing over. We can reapply for jobs. But most of us know who have been there that if they're applying for jobs, a lot of the people that work there would not be corporate type personalities that may get a job in a corporate run restaurant. So the reality is that most of those people will probably not be rehired by the new management of the place. And that's the thing, though. I mean, there is an evolution. There is a transition. Top Hat went out of town a number of years ago. People were upset about that. You know, but things change. And that's just kind of the way the world works sometimes. And Jolene, Spence, you've, you've known the Vagabond for a long time. They've been uh, a great proprietor and a partner of the station with you. Uh, you want to speak to the Vagabond and what some of your thoughts are? Hey, Jolene and the staff over the years, she has raised over ninety dollars to $100,000 for the Children's Services Auxiliary, which is the foster kids. She not only opens her doors for us, but she takes every menu item from 5 to 9 o'clock that morning, anything you buy goes straight to the kids. All of the cash. It doesn't even cover her costs. That's really generous. That's like a local business person who is really working for the community. So we love her. Everything she's done, everybody there knows you. It's warm, it's wonderful, and it's, uh, it's kind. But is it the business of now? And that's one of the things maybe the, the new folks are looking at. Maybe it has to be flashier. It has to be the funk zone. And I think that's that's the issue at hand. Well, it's a diner, Spence. So, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, a diner's business, you know, is between, what, 9 and 3 o'clock in the day, maybe 9 and 2. And, you know, we have local, we have great local diners in Ventura. I think it's uh, like Allison's or Pete's mm-hmm. or whatever. And the Vagabond, obviously, uh, it's a diner. So... 
what are you going to do differently with a diner? Like I heard that, you know, part of uh, Jolene's problem is that they, she has to stay open by terms of release through a dinner crowd. And if you go there for dinner, number one, it's probably like sparsely populated. Like if you go there for breakfast, like I was in there yesterday for breakfast, actually, and there was every table was but a, but a few were filled. And I stopped in there at night when I'm working late to get a bite to eat and there's nobody in there. And you still have staff and things like that running. So I know that's going to hurt your overhead. I mean, to have to run it that way. Oh yeah. You, know? you look at some of the other successful breakfast joints in town, eggs and things being one of them, and they're open from breakfast and lunch, and then they close, right. and then you know clean, recoup, and then there you go. You know, right. it's kind of the be good at be very good at one or two things, but you can't try and do everything. You know, a very challenging business as well. But as they uh, have their last weeks. Let's get in there and try and support them as best we can. Uh, I know there's a shirt going around and, uh, you know, say goodbye to a, a staple that we've had in Ventura for a long time. So that will be good to do coming up as far as the Vagabond. Do we know the date that it actually? Yeah, January 1st. She has a tradition. Every January 1st, she serves black-eyed peas. They've been doing it since they've been opened. It was one of the traditions her, her deceased husband had. And she wants to do the same thing this January 1st for the 53rd straight year. So they'll be open January 1st. After, I think, lunch on that day, they close. Uh, the Jolene Vagabond closes for good, and the corporate Vagabond will open somewhere in four to six months after that. Our next topic I want to bring up is uh, the idea of the Thomas Fire and the rebuilding. We saw um, recently the first homes being finished, that they're rebuilt and they're finished. And we take a look at maybe the process of how it goes through to, you know, some people are upset. They're not doing enough to do permits and they're still taking a long time. Other people are saying, hey, they're doing a pretty good job given the circumstances. Do you have a sense on to how it's going in, in, in terms of what you're hearing or what you're thinking uh, related to, I guess, the city's response to where we're at with this? Well, yeah, my perspective is based on I have a number of friends who lost houses. And so, um, and we've been going to Christmas parties, like I'm sure everybody has, where you talk to people and where they're at. And there's a lot of frustration with most of the homeowners that I know that lost out, especially the ones, I'll say, west of um, Clearview, those homes. So I'm talking about above the high school area, that, that type of locations. Um, they've had a lot of frustrations because the codes in there are much more complicated, I guess, because of the views and things of out of the water than they would be in Clearpoint. That's my understanding, at least. And so they've had trouble getting permits to build the same type of house that they had before or anything different. And so there was a lot of frustration. There's a lot of frustration with getting those permits to um, clean the property. I don't know what the word is for it, but they had to take all the burnt stuff off the property. It's and do soil space. tests and right. do all that stuff and clear it before it's ready right. for any. And there building. were issues with the people who were contracted to do that and who was licensed to do that. I guess it's a complicated business. Uh, I live at the beach, so we don't have these issues in terms of rebuilding. We didn't have any fire damage, but I have so many friends who have been so frustrated with everything. But the big picture is that I know it's a thankless job to sit there and have to service what we've had over 200 homes uh, destroyed by the fire, and you have to process 200 home applications. And I'm sure there are things in place in terms of codes and regulations that suit us all, that benefit us all in ways we don't know that they have to comply with to get their homes rebuilt. And I'm sure if there's 200 homes being rebuilt, there's 200 different ways of doing it. I can see how that could be a very complicated process. So it would be hard for me to sit in judgment of the city on this issue. If I was going to criticize them for anything, I would say it'd probably be a good idea to have like somebody who does a better job communicating sometimes what the issues are in a more clear fashion because there's a lot of confusion. And it's tough, too, because there's a lot of decisions that need to be made. I mean, you're, everyone came onto this cold. What I mean is these people weren't planning to rebuild a home, and here they are 
now you need to rebuild a home in addition to dealing with all the emotions of it. So it's been a very difficult thing for the homeowners and I think the city to embrace. And, uh, you know, I guess I'm not as close to it, so I don't I don't have uh, my finger on the pulse of what's happening. But I was uh, I was pleased to see that a home has completed the process. I think that was uh, was a very good thing. Spence, do you have any thoughts on that? I had a chance to talk to two builders, and it seems like the whole thing is who had the best insurance because uh, money solves a lot of problems. And there's some people who are shocked to find out that they're not even close to be able, from the clearing to the rebuild to the new codes, that they can't even look at a new home. And there's people, I know somebody who bought one of the pads and now is building a beautiful home on it, and they get to benefit from this tragedy and building a new home, and this home is fantastic. I think a lot of it does come down to how much you can cover and how much you know you can spend because a lot of people are looking at their beautiful house that they had in their family for many many years and now they have to walk away from it. Yeah, I really I think it's an insurance issue. Well, we represent a lot of victims of the Thomas fire in terms of pursuing those damages in terms of the shortfall between what insurance covered and what it cost to move back in. And one thing I noticed with many of our clients and many other people is that nobody ever anticipates a disaster. So I don't know about you, but I always tell people, you you need to look at your insurance policy every year to make sure it's up to date because people pay premiums and they got the policy in 1986. Well, prices have changed since 86 and they haven't upped their benefits enough. And so people are shocked. They said, well, nobody ever told me. And I, I can see that the checks come in. If an insurance agent is not on top of it and doesn't go talk to their clients and say, hey, look, you're underinsured, you should get X, Y, and Z. I mean, it made me go back as a lawyer and look at my policy, and I increased my limits in terms of what I would get. And I live at a place where, you know, I think I have a bigger worry of tsunami than I would fire. Without going back to the law, it could be somebody's at fault for this. I I would imagine that the fire started for some reason. They know why. It's not a mystery. It is not. So right now, that lawsuit... If somebody's looking at being underinsured, how many years down the line could they be till they see any cash back on this? Any? Oh, um, hopefully not one because we have a few of these places. Uh, okay. The way it works this is uh, a mass tort litigation. Mm-hmm. So um, I think there's going to be, and we, we include all the way up to Montecito with this litigation because the argument has been made and will be made that what happened in Montecito is a direct result of the Thomas fire and not the rains. Okay, but the way it works right now is that. What the courts are doing, we're all, we've all been moved to Los Angeles because the, the court system in Ventura would be overwhelmed by these cases. There's lots of conflicts of interest in terms of judges have experienced loss or whatever. So it's best just to move it all to Los Angeles. Oh, about 15 years ago, we did the priest cases when the police mo- priest molest cases of the archdiocese came. And we had Ventura County cases. And the same thing's happening on those cases as with the Thomas fire, where they're all being consolidated. We're going to be put in groups down in Los Angeles. And then I think they're going to wait for the statute of limitations to run so they know what the the totality of the group is that's going to be suing. So we'll know all the plaintiffs by then. Once the statute of limitations runs and it's too late to sue, so you, they know that these are the people who can, will have claims. And so my guess is there'll be somewhere between a couple thousand cases, somewhere around there, maybe 1,500 cases. What we did in the priest cases, there were about 1,500 cases, we divided up into groups. They were just designated by time of filing and then eventually designated by the molest that occurred. Okay. So they'll do it by time of filing, my guess, and the type of damages that incurred and larger damage cases and things like that. And then a settlement pool is created. I believe Southern California Edison will take responsibility due to their negligence that the fire started, and they'll build a settlement pool. The settlement pool is comprised of not only Southern California Edison's money, but also their insurers, and their insurance companies come to the table, and they have to put up the money, and they get a big pool. 
and then the calculations and the arguing amongst lawyers about who gets what occurs. So to answer your question, Spence, I would estimate that it'll take three to five years before it all gets hashed out, but it will get hashed out. But somebody might end up in a different place in a different house because they just can't hang on because they didn't have insurance. Uh, would, right. would we guess that? Yeah, yeah, you can't. And that's a tragedy. That's, that's really a shame. You can't advance money or things like you, that. Sure. Nothing, so. nothing could happen. So, I, you know, I got to drive around and I saw houses being built. And it's one of the saddest, happiest scenes you'll ever see at the same time. The beautiful home going up and they're doing a great job. And there's just that pad sitting there. And, you know, obviously some issues. Well, it is interesting, the idea that the Woolsey fire and the campfire, you know, those are now a year behind where we are and we're behind where, you know, Northern California is with what happened there. And, and you know, that kind of is just such an interesting phenomenon to see how it's almost been like dominoes in some ways to see how this plays out. And I know the cities try and help each other with navigating this. And it's a very difficult thing. I do have another topic I want to bring up today, and it's the idea of uh, political correctness. You know, how, how in some ways being so right can be so wrong. And we saw locally, we did see something that a lot of people are not happy about. Some people might feel pleased with, but the idea that uh, the Ventura superintendent for the Unified School District was in some ways pushed out of his job because of something he said a number of years ago that was uh, was not appropriate for a marginalized population. And, uh, and someone in that role should be, I guess, caring and supportive to all populations all the time, even in the past. And so that's how some, that's how it kind of feels or looks. Do you have an opinion or a view on uh, what happened and in and, and general political correctness? We'll, we'll, well take it that way. My first opinion is that you just phrased the issue in the most politically correct way possible. <laughs> <laughs> well, the way I look at it now, and uh, sometimes I do TV work and things of that nature or I'm in the public eye, is that I am very conscious of things that I am saying and how it's going to be interpreted later. And I think if you have such a job or you're inspired to be such a job, you should be careful about that. I, I'll go back into the 80s. I was a, with a professor when I was at USC, and this is before social media and everything like that, and he refused to ever be photographed with, a, with any alcoholic beverage in his hand, just refused, because he said, I never know what I'm going to do in the future. I don't want anybody to misinterpret a photo. And so he w that stuck with me. To this day, you will never see me photographed with an alcoholic beverage in my hand. Uh, not that I drink or don't drink. We don't know, do we? Uh, <laughs> the uh, I drink. The reality is is that you do have to be conscious nowadays. Now, it, you know what the issue that really bothers me on this that I've noticed recently is people going back on people who become suddenly famous, like some 25-year-old, 26-year-old does something amazing, and they go back and they read tweets from when they were in high school. And they tweeted something in, in high school that is politically incorrect, or they, retreated, they tweeted rap lyrics. There was a guy who played for Villanova's basketball team who tweeted rap lyrics apparently um, when he was 14 in high school and people judging him by what he did at 14 or 13 uh, and I find that to be disturbing because I don't think anybody should be held responsible uh, for things they did as a little kid uh, we don't hold people criminally responsible why would we hold them like socially responsible at that age you're an idiot when you're that age uh, the gentleman you're speaking of the superintendent was not a child he was an adult he said some things, and I've heard, I've watched that video. They're disturbing. I mean, I don't know any other way to put it. You know, whatever your beliefs are, I know it was a church function or whatever, uh, whatever your beliefs are, they're just disturbing. And I think in some ways, you mentioned with a child saying something 10 years ago, and with this adult saying something a number of years ago. As an adult. As an adult, a number of years ago, but he didn't say it today. He said it a number of years ago. 
I, I feel like there's, you know, and I'm not saying whatever was said is appropriate or not appropriate then or now. But I think I think a lot of people miss that the the difference in what's contextually appropriate now versus what was or wasn't then. I don't. Think I think was, there's change. I don't think. Well, I don't think it was appropriate then. Okay, number one. The only difference that we have right now is we're able to go back in time and everything's on video and everything's right, recorded right. and everybody has tweets or Facebook posts and things of that nature, uh, and that's that's disturbing to people when that you can go back and do that. But you know what? The same thing would have happened 20 years ago if we had all this technology available to us. We can go back and say, hey, what did Mike say when 10, 15 years ago? And if we had that ability, or what did Spence say in 1982 uh, about this issue? There's certain things that were wrong in 82, are wrong in 92, are wrong in 2002, are wrong today. There's just certain things you just can't say or do. And now you could argue that the position you had back 10 years ago is the correct position today. Or you can argue I've evolved, and then people can judge. But apparently, in this situation, people have judged, and he's, he's apologized. Right. And people have judged that you know you probably shouldn't be in the job you have. And Spence, what's your take on essentially the same topic? I think it's dangerous because uh, one of my favorite movies, and some people might have seen it. I'm a hockey fan. Slapshot. I've seen it. Watch it again, and there's uh, jokes on a certain lifestyle that are incredibly nasty. But we flowed with them back then, and I, I watched it about a year ago, and I, I, I was startled. I, I forgot that joke was in there. Same with Bad News Bears. I was about to say that, Bad yeah. News Bears. <laughs> and we got to interview. Uh, they, they showed the movie in Moorpark, and the entire cast, except for Jodie Foster and Walter Matthau, obviously, was there. And they were talking about that between the African-American kid that was in there and some of the things that were said. Another one is we remember Al Campanis when he got caught up in what you were saying, Ron, yeah. about having your— Ducks in a row, he was ad-living at the Astrodome, and he was in the flow, and he made some horrible mistakes in what he said. Jimmy the Greek, a wonderful sports guy. He said some things after maybe a cocktail that— Or two. or three. Yeah, whatever. And (laughs) and he, he spun into a horrible situation, and he lost his career. The final one I'll do, and it's irritating. We were talking about this just the other day, is Vanessa Williams. Here was a girl— who did some, let's say, naughty photographs when she was younger, but still like 18 or 19. She wins Miss America. They find out she gets booted out, gone. And then she becomes one of the most successful singers of the time and actresses. She did very well. I just think we we can cut people a break occasionally. And I do think we're very, very harsh in not letting somebody stand up, write themselves and keep their position in, in the world. Well, here's the deal, I think. It's like when you're a person in public eye and you've benefited from the public's, um, from being in the public eye, you have a responsibility. And so, yeah, that's the r- price of doing business. It just is. And so you have to accept that. I mean, if you're going to benefit from something, like I do TV work now, and I benefit from that. You know, people get to know me. I get more clients, whatever. I mean, if I'm a fool and I go on TV and uh, I say things that are inappropriate or I say things just I slip of the tongue that is inappropriate, that's on me. You know, if I'm going to take the benefit of that, I assume the risk of it also. Uh, The things like the Al Campanis things and the Jimmy the Greek, you know, those were awful things. They said awful things. And so you shouldn't get the benefit there. You can make whatever excuse you have, but, yeah, that's going to cost you, and it should. And if that's the penalty, that's the penalty. Now, there are other things that we, like if somebody says something, a joke, and people say, oh, I find that joke offensive, and it was intended as a joke, depending on the joke, 
you know, you either apologize or say, no, that wasn't the way it was intended. This is how it was intended. Now, there's a comedians that you could go watch and they'll make uh, jokes and it's clear what they're doing. And you, it's clear they're doing it in fun and it's clear that people are enjoying it. You can't go back and say, hey, those jokes are inappropriate. Like the Bad News Bears. Those were, that was humor at the time. It's inappropriate now. We all know it's inappropriate now. Now that would not fly. Back then it's different. Now, if that was their belief, that they believed those things back then, that was wrong to believe that back then. And it's wrong to believe that now. There's no difference. So it'd be different like if they discovered a, a video and she was espousing those beliefs, <clears throat> that'd be different. If she's doing it in satire or in acting or reading lines, that's different than how she is today. But if she did it as, as this is my belief, like the superintendent, it appeared that he believed what he was saying. I don't know what anybody else's take on it, but watching the video and I saw it on social media, it appeared he believed what he was saying. Okay. Well, I just think there's a, I guess there's a difference. So like, like as you're talking about movies and whatnot, there's a, a censorship of movies before we allow our kids to watch them or you know, we're no, we can't watch that anymore. No, we're not going to watch the Sandlot because it says the bad word, and it really zooms in on the girl as she crosses the street on an area that's not appropriate for there to be a zoom in. And it, so it's kind of like there's stuff now where, as parents, there's things we enjoyed as kids. Now our kids are not going to be able to enjoy because there's been a shift in what's appropriate. And I'm not saying it's wrong that the shift took place. I'm just say, I'm just observing there's a difference, and I'm not sure how I feel about the difference. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I mean, I think it's like a case-by-case basis. And, like, my boys watch The Sandlot, and they got it, and they enjoyed it, and I didn't find anything wrong as a parent to letting them see that. Now, if they did some of the activity that uh, the kids in The Sandlot, as a parent, I would say something. But there's a difference. And we all make the best decisions we can going forward, but there's a lot of things that, that were okay back in 78 that aren't okay in 2018. Right. That's fine. But what I look at is what's the belief behind that? You know, what's the intent behind that? And uh, there's certain things where I, I find that, that we're just, we don't want to be overly sensitive. And there's certain things when I say them, I go, well, now, you know, back then we didn't have the guts to call you what you were. Right today we do. Or the inverse of that. Mm-hmm. Or we can't, now we're not going to call you what you are mm-hmm. <laughs> because we're not supposed to, you know, or, you know, so there's just, there's, there's, it seems to be that there's a lot of uh, change. There's a lot of, and I think uh, it's hard to sometimes keep up with where that change takes place. You know, that's the part that I find difficult at times. Well, uh, what, I, what I caution young lawyers is, uh, and when I was coaching my trial, I cautioned everybody this. I go, you know, you better be darn sure about your humor if you're going right. to use humor. You better be sure because there's a price to pay by a jury who you offend or by a scorer that you offend. So you better be sure. And I was, you know, and I'm one who makes fun, as you know, of everybody at all times mm-hmm. and I know sometimes people don't take it well I'm willing to pay the price once in a while but I try to make sure that the people I'm teasing or the people I'm having fun with uh, know me well enough or are have thick enough skin that it's not going to bother them when I coach kids for instance I am very careful who I tease and how I tease them and it takes me a while before I'll even feel comfortable joking around with a kid because you don't know what kid is sensitive and which kid is not and I don't think I don't think it's bad that we think this way I don't think it's bad that we're taking stock of how we're going to talk or who, you know, being considerate of other people. I, you know, I tell my kids to be considerate of other people all the time. So to think about how will Mike feel if I tease him about his shirt today? And I know you people can't see it, but I would never have chosen such an outfit. Uh, but you got to think about those things before you do it. And it's funny in political correctness. Uh, there's a great uh, show on Netflix right now. And with Seinfeld, they talk about three plots. Two of them made of 
made it, one didn't. One was a joke on the Holocaust. One was a joke on the Kennedy assassination uh, with a second spitter. And the third one was Elaine buys a gun to protect herself. They cast the show. The show was written. They were about to do it, and they said no. And it was, it was the gun show that made them the most nervous all the way back then. So, like you say, reviewing and taking a look and, and what it's going to push the wrong button, I, I agree 100% with that comedy stuff. Man, tell it to 20. We always talk about what was the table where somebody said that and it was okay. Man, run it through and, and think about it because uh, we've seen it too many times recently. It, it can completely undo you. And as we close the show, I'll finish with one last question. Speed round. We got just a little bit of time left. But where does Ventura County go and where should they be putting more focus uh, for the long-term future? As we approach 2019, where should the focus be to really make Ventura County a better place or continue what's already good here? What can the county do the, to focus on being better for the long term? I think uh, the challenge for Ventura County uh, is growth and how we're going to manage it. Um, we're going to have to have it. We've got too many people, housing, business, what are we going to support? I know there's a lot of people locally. Uh, I have friends who, my, I have a, uh, a daughter who's graduated college, is working now, and they, people wonder, well, my contemporaries wonder, how are our kids ever going to live here because it's too expensive? Well, what has to happen? We have to have jobs. We have to have places for them to live. Right now, we don't have those solutions. I mean, we have Oxnard building and Camarillo building everywhere. We have Ventura building nowhere. <laughs> you know, so uh, how do we attract businesses to California? I think that's going to be a challenge. We have a lot of businesses moving out of state because of the taxes. How do we attract those businesses to increase our growth, to keep our standard of living the way we want to enjoy it? I think those are the biggest challenges, not only that our county faces, but our state faces. Very well said. Thank you, Ron Spence. 100% housing. When you look at a, a decent place to live, to rent at two to $3,000 just for a decent place, you got to make a lot of money out of college to afford that. We have to do something about housing. Have to. Housing. And I'm going to come in and say we should be focusing on attracting business, attracting more businesses. You look at the Patagonia and the Trade Desk and two huge companies in Ventura. You got Amgen. You have a number of good tech businesses in Santa Barbara emerging. And I don't think we're doing enough uh, to try and attract these businesses to be here, albeit if they were here, give them housing. Also a big problem, as you guys mentioned. So that is an idea I would like to see focused on. That's all the time we have for today's show. A big thank you to Ron Bamier and Tom Spence. I'm Michael Anderson, and you've been listening to The Big Idea Show. Special thanks to our sponsors. Uh, this is brought to you by Boyd & Associates, the largest family-owned security company in Southern California, established in 1967. For your home and business security needs, visit boydsecurity.com or call 805-650-3267. And also brought to you by Era Energy, powered by safety, innovation, and community. We help keep California moving forward. Thank you for listening. Have a great week, a Merry Christmas, and we'll see you next week. Do you ever question if your investments are right for you? Do you own any annuities, retirement accounts, or have other money you want help with? Have you ever wondered what your advisor is making or how they get paid? Get a free second opinion. Talk with Michael Anderson, Certified Financial Planner. Call his answering service today, 805-665-3767. Leave a message and get a call back immediately, 805-665-3767.